Thanks for listening to In Good Faith. We love our listeners, and we'd love to meet you in person. The In Good Faith production team will be at the upcoming Faith Matters Restore Gathering, October 7th and 8th at the Salt Palace in Salt Lake City. And we'd love a chance to connect with you in person. Check out the program and buy tickets at faithmatters.org. See you there. Holy Envy. It's a stolen phrase, a borrowed phrase from Krister Stendhal. But what I loved about it before I ever knew where it came from or who said it was the curiosity it engenders. The phrase itself puts a question mark in the air, and I always think that's a fabulous way to begin a conversation. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking in good faith today with Barbara Brown Taylor, who is a best-selling author, teacher, and Episcopal priest. Her memoir, Leaving Church, won an Author of the Year Award from the Georgia Writers Association in 2006. And we're speaking today about a particular book, which starts off with the title, Holy Envy. So, first of all, Barbara, thank you for making time today. I'm so happy to be here, Steve. Thanks. You're here speaking on the BYU campus later today about this very subject, and I wonder if you could give the whole title of the book. Holy Envy, Finding God in the Faith of Others, based on classroom experience, which I'll talk about later today. Yeah. So the title of your book strikes me as this strange contradiction, holy envy. That's like a good and a bad. I thought of sacred greed, admirable, avarice. How do you explain what that means to you? Good grief, sacred cow, we could go on and on, right? <laughs> um, it's a stolen phrase, a borrowed phrase from Krister Stendhal. We can talk about that later. But what I loved about it before I ever knew where it came from or who said it was the curiosity it engenders, which you just spoke to. Yeah. How can envy be holy? Isn't that one of the seven deadly sins? And So the phrase itself puts a question mark in the air, and I always think that's a fabulous way to begin a conversation. You served on the faculties of Piedmont College, Emory University, Mercer University, Columbia Seminary, Oblate School of Theology, and a Certificate in Theological Studies program at the Arendale State Prison for Women in Alto, Georgia. You have a lot of classroom experience, but I'd like to know, first of all, what took you to the whole concept of being interested in studying world religions? I think it happened shortly after I married a man named Ed. Neither of us had ever been off the continent, and we took vacations that got more and more mileage on them. Mm -hmm. And of course, as people at BYU know better than anyone, when you travel, lots of question marks come up. So I just became fascinated with what I saw and heard, everything from architecture to language, to song, to dance. So I think the curiosity in people of other faiths came from travel. That actually sort of brought up a bad habit in me, which was shoplifting from other traditions and bringing home trinkets and displaying them on shelves in my library. But when I got the chance to teach world religions, it was so fabulous to begin to find out how those, what, objects, materials, songs were embedded in long, long wisdom traditions. So it was a perfect fit for me when I got to begin teaching introduction to world religions because I was only about six weeks ahead of the students. Mm. 
So your name is Barbara Taylor, and excuse the pun, but your book is tailor-made for this particular show <laughs> in good faith. Some people ask, why, other than intellectual curiosity, does it even matter to understand different world religions? Oh, I have a friend that if you don't know at least two religions, you don't know any. That, mm. that without conversation, without dialogue, without questions from people who do not trust the same things I trust. When Jews or Muslims ask me about the Christian Trinity, I think my answers are completely unconvincing. But it's so wonderful to go searching for a decent answer to something no Christian ever asks me about. So apart from intellectual curiosity, the subtitle of the book is Finding God in the Faith of Others, which was a way to talk about how others, including humanists, atheists, agnostics, challenged me to think about what I do trust and why I do live the way I do, and which questions they asked me were terrific ones, and which ones came out of things in their lives that I wanted to know more about. But I've always had a sense, I think this is a kind of Christian thing, that what we have most in common is our humanity and not our religion. My religion taught me that. Hmm. And so it was a natural curiosity for me from my faith tradition. Is there a switch, and maybe you see this in your students, is there a switch that has to somehow flip in our minds mm -hmm. for us to allow, if we've been raised strongly in one tradition and told this is the truth and this is how it is and those poor other people in the world, we'll do our best to help them because people are raised that way. Mm -hmm. Is there a switch that has to flip for them to say, for the moment, I'm going to suspend that and listen to them, understanding that they feel about their tradition the same way I have felt about mine. Well, you named an important thing, which is when does the switch flip so that I realize I'm not talking to an empty vessel? Mm. I'm not talking to someone who has never thought about the meaning of life, why we're here, what we're supposed to be doing. The biggest help for me was moving from a church ministry to a classroom ministry because I found church was a primary place, and that's mm -hmm. where a lot of the teaching about why our way is different and better than others. But the classroom was a secondary place, and there was something about the one-removedness of it that allowed students' natural curiosity to bloom, especially after they tested me and found out that religious studies did not mean I was going to try to make them more religious, which ah, a lot of them thought. Interesting. So I loved teaching. It was a question place and not an answer place, and students swarmed to the freedom to ask questions. Maybe a freedom they hadn't felt sometimes, maybe with, with friends or parents because it seemed maybe offensive mm. to question other people's faith. Perhaps, or to ask questions out of their own genuine curiosity, because many of them had been taught that was unfaithful, that to be in any way curious about another tradition was to be disloyal to their own. Yeah. So that's what Holy Envy helped with. If they if they bought that phrase at all, that there was a way in which that could be a kind of sacred desire, a way of noticing something beautiful in another tradition that did not make them disloyal to their own, the blossoming occurred once they trusted the possibility that was true. Can you remember the first time or two that you actually felt that, what you now define as holy envy? Oh, we don't have enough time. I mean, Let's make a stab then. <laughs> well, a lot of I was not raised in a family that went to church and mm -hmm. and that was not because they weren't faithful people, but those faiths had collided. My father was Roman Catholic, my mother was Methodist. And when they married before Vatican II, they had to be married in a side chapel and 
there was a lot of talk about my sinfulness. And I was the firstborn child of these people. And that my baptism, interestingly, was the last time they went to church. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so that meant I had to do seeking on my own. And yeah, so every yeah. place I went into, I mean, I would visit m- with my friends. I'd go to Good grief, Unitarian churches, Presbyterian churches. These days, they would all be defined as mainline churches. But I visited, and everywhere I went, they did things differently. I went with one friend to her place on a Saturday, and we built Noah's arcs out of little popsicle sticks. And I went home and told my mom about it. And she said, well, you went to synagogue, sweetie. That wasn't a church. That was a synagogue. And I had no idea. I just thought it was so cool, you know, the way they did things there. So it was built in because I didn't get much, um, we could call it religious education education or indoctrination, but I got neither one. Mm. So I was led by my curiosity, and that continued my whole life. Did you have a sense of God as a child, as a teenager, that there was such a thing and maybe that you had a connection? No name for it then, but a huge sense of connection that came, as it does for many people, very young in the world, in the world of creation, in the trees, in the wind, in the thunderstorm, in the fire, in the fields behind my house. And it was so strong there that later when I tried to speak of that in tighter boxes of Christian tradition, I started being called a pantheist and a pagan and a New Ager. It was so interesting mm. the way in which that was dissed out of some kind of fear that I worshipped trees or toads or something. But but yes, this, the sense of awesomeness, of grandeur, which Albert Einstein identified, you know, mm. that sense of mystery. I'm part of something so big I don't understand it. That seems to me essential to the religious project or the spiritual project. So I got a dose of that early. I'm kind of jealous I don't get to take your class, but I, we're trying to cram in as much yeah. as possible and recommend your book to people. Did you also have some sense that, that God was interactive, that there were such things as answers to prayers or direction or nudgings in the course of life? Nudgings, yes, though this – it's a terrific question because it shifts. Ask me mm-hmm. every year and I'll have a different answer. I mean, <laughs> I had friends. You'd think God had sent them a telegram you know, with words, stop, do this, stop get in touch, stop. And I didn't have that. Um, A couple times in my life, I had a sense of being communicated with a message so different from anything I would have come up with on my own that I suspect that was divine. I hold it as divine, though I'm the daughter of a psychology professor. And I've always thought students should take Psych 101 before they take Religion 101 to learn a little bit about the way the human mind works. Mm. So so I would say strong nudging, now what I would call more instinct than information. God communicates with me instinctively. It's why I wear a Holy Spirit around my neck, is this descending dove that can be fire and wind and is the wild card of the Christian trinity, just is very hard to cage. I did notice that. It's a silver dove going down, but the tail and the wings could also be a flame. Yeah, love it. It's beautiful. You have intriguing chapter titles. Oh, I do. And one of my favorites was this whole chapter of the God that you did not make up. That's tricky, isn't it? I loved having this thought put into my mind Mm -hmm. and then analyzing how I felt about it, which was Mm -hmm. the simple question of what is spirituality to you Mm -hmm. and different answers. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, the story behind it was um, I got invited to teach spirituality, Christian spirituality at Columbia Presbyterian Seminary in Decatur, Georgia. 
I said, sure, I'd love to. And then I started asking friends what it was. And their definitions (laughs) were all over the place. But the person who got my attention was the one who used that phrase. And she said, spirituality is the active pursuit of the God you didn't make up. And I had to go take an aspirin on that one and lie down and think all night long about what that meant. And it meant clearly getting beyond all these self-affirming, ego-gratifying things that I had been taught about how God looks, thinks, and votes like I do. And that is a huge surrender. And yet, when I looked at every one of the world's great religions, you know, at base, in my vocabulary, they're all about two things, get over yourself and love your neighbor. Yeah. Get over yourself and help other people. And so it was so curious that so much of religion popularly ended up being aggrandize yourself, save yourself, and get as many people as you can to agree with you. It was just a collision. So I love that idea. And it's for every person to ask that question. What part of God is there because I want it to be? And how does the God I think I believe in keep interrupting that idea? Keep interrupting that idea, which life just does anyway. I would love to be in a class and able to look in your students' eyes and sort of seeing various lights go on at different points. Mm -hmm. That must be a really intriguing thing Mm -hmm. to be involved with something so core to people's identity or maybe a brand new thing to them that's going to open a door to something they'd never stepped through. Sometimes I sense fear from people who are presented with the teachings of another faith, or the understandings of God of another faith, almost like, I can't hear this. Do you see that sometimes, and do you see that change in your students? Only if I assured them from the start that they did not have to believe anything I said. Mm. They simply had to complete the course assignments. (laughs) (laughs) And I think... As one of them kind of hysterically said, he just never knew whether we were going to sacrifice a goat the next time that we came to class. And, you know, I was able finally to acquaint him with that being a ritual in some traditions, but it's done with a prayer and a way of making the meal holy in the same way he prayed over a turkey after someone had sacrificed that. But nonetheless, he was he was being funny and it was funny. But it was so important early on to say this class is not about changing what you believe. And in fact, this may not be the best time for you to take this class. So do a little survey tonight Mm. about look at the syllabus, read the things I'm going to ask you to do, because you'll never not know the things you're about to learn. And that became especially important with a class like Christian theology. Think twice, maybe not the best time to interrogate your faith. Mm. So that was the important part of the class, setting boundaries in the beginning so that they knew it was not about changing them. Well, you'll be speaking to students and faculty later today. What do you hope the students walk away with from what you share? Oh, and I have to then correct what I just said. That was a lie. I did want to change the students. I wanted them to ask better questions Mm. about their faiths, the faiths of other people, the meaning of life, why they're here, what they're supposed to be doing, what happens after they die. I wanted them to ask better questions. I did want to change them. Mm. And so that's what I would hope anyone hearing me today would come out with, something I said that sounded true to them, that made them uncomfortable, that they would like to say yes but to, and I'd be so improved if I had a chance to hear every yes but, Mm. because I love that kind of thing, if it's not mean. You know, mean, mean ones are hurtful, so I try not to do them and try not to inspire them. But if I engage people's curiosity about anyone else's experience, that can't help but be good. 
When you have experiences in your own services that you would say the Holy Spirit is present, Mm -hmm. have you been surprised by that same feeling or essence in services of religions far removed from that Christian tradition? Yes, and the opposite. I've been frightened sometimes as well, Mm -hmm. but I think that comes more out of not knowing Mm -hmm. what's going on than it does from anything that happened, but I, I have. And the strongest, you just brought this to mind, the strongest was going to a reform synagogue in Atlanta and first time being worried about being disloyal, you know, to be part of a worshiping community that didn't see Jesus the way I did. Mm. And then, honest to goodness, Steve, it was like he was sitting next to me saying, it's okay, I did this all the time. (laughs) And that was so relieving. Oh, that Jesus was in synagogue. Yeah, I mean, he he wanted to lean over and say, I can read this Hebrew, don't worry about it. You know, it's... (laughs) I know this song by heart. I know how this tune goes. Don't worry about it. Now I'm, now I'm picturing, I think it's Luke 4, where he announces his ministry in Nazareth yeah, at the synagogue. at a synagogue. Yeah. yeah, why did I think he would be uncomfortable there? <laughs> interesting, so. interesting. I was intrigued by the epilogue, and the epilogue says, Church of the Common Ground. Mm. So I think some people are worried that, for instance, an ecumenical movement means we're just going to water everything down to the barest common denominator which is there is something bigger we don't understand. They're worried about watering down their own tradition. And yet I have found that people who are involved with interfaith work seem actually sometimes to be strengthened in their own tradition. Is this your experience? Absolutely. First of all, I need to dive deeper in than ever before to give good answers. And furthermore, I need to practice the faith so that Mm -hmm. it's apparent when I walk in a room, God, that's way too high to reach, isn't it? But point being, I need to be better at mine if I want to be a good conversation partner. And beyond that, in my prep for coming to BYU, I learned there are 30,000 students, most of whom have lived in other countries and speak more than one language. And I think language is a wonderful metaphor Mm. That there are many languages that speak of the divine in such different ways. Buddhists might want to excuse themselves from speaking of the divine, but their language of the transcendent, of why we're here, what we're supposed to be doing, etc. I think to know a language well, to know the declensions and the punctuation, and to know the history of the language and where it came from and when it needed changing. Mm. In other words, to know my faith that well enables me to speak with other people and let them speak to me in their languages and to increase my regard you know, for their knowledge of what their language points to. I am a sucker for religions being fingers pointing to the moon, but not the moon. So I am a sucker for that. But I think I got it in my religious training that the divine is beyond my ability to contain or describe accurately. But I'm going to try. What you talk about with languages reminds me just of the idea when I studied and learned a second language, which was you may not really even understand your first language until you start on a second one. Right. And that sounds like the same thing, religiously speaking, spiritually speaking. Right. And then there are words in other languages that have no parallel in mind. And Mm. so the only approximations come through, which leads me to be appropriately, what, respectful of resonances that aren't exact equivalents, right? So, yeah, I love the language metaphor because you just worked on it. And the more I work on it, it's lovely. But it does encourage me to own my tradition, to love it enough to learn everything I can about it, and then to transfer that kind of regard for mine and suppose that someone else has that kind of regard for theirs. What personal 
practices or rituals or ways of thinking on a daily, weekly, monthly basis make you feel connected to God? I am an old woman now, so these practices have changed a lot. At this mm-hmm. point in my life, having, I think, interiorized a lot of the teachings of my faith, I find myself now focused on the ones that go like this. Look at the birds of the air. Consider the lilies of the field. There once was a man who had two sons. The kingdom of God is like a woman kneading bread in her kitchen. I have found myself so in love with what I see all around me, even the terrifying, scary stuff that's challenging. But the idea that the divine is present to me in the everyday Some Christians call it the practice of the presence of God, and it doesn't have a stopwatch on it. It happens when you wake up. It ends when you go to sleep. And the only catch is how aware will you be during the day. One of my favorite guys is Brother Lawrence, who worked in a monastery kitchen in the 1600s. And he said he'd really lost interest in most spiritual practices that he could flip a pancake for the love of God. And he could sweep the floor of the kitchen for the love of God. And i that is the practice that challenges me now. And, and it's worth good questions about, isn't that too secular? Isn't that too easy to do? And it's not easy to do, to, to stay in a state of awareness of the ways in which the ordinary is always growing translucent with the divine. Which could be talked about as anything from mindfulness on a more Eastern tradition to contemplative awareness and being open to God's direction or presence or even, yeah, even just presence, whatever that means, whether or not it's directing Mm -hmm. to any particular thing. I think it's what churches that own sacraments or ordinances, I mean, think about foot washing. What is that if that's not a practice in awareness? You know, what is the practice of the Lord's Supper or baptism if it's not a practice of being aware of the life-giving nature of water, of the necessity of even a scrap of bread and a sip of wine? I think sacraments are great schools. And again, other words for those, ordinances and but great schools for attending to the ordinary and its role in the extraordinary. So growing up in my tradition, I was always struck by the words, all things testify of me. Oh, yeah. And so I have sometimes thought, well, all things. So what even in other faiths is testifying Mm -hmm. of the reality of a God, of a a presence, Mm -hmm. of a creator? Mm -hmm. I think just following that natural progression, if all things testify of God, then there is something to find all around the world Mm -hmm. in everything. I love in the book where you point out that you can't just say Muslims believe this, Christians believe this, (laughs) because the divisions even within, you know, the, the Shia, the Sunni, the Sufi, and then within Christianity from Catholic and Protestant to restoration to you name it. And then if you are to pick out people in any one of those subgroups and say, what do you believe? And ask the person standing next to them, what do you believe? Think (laughs) we start to get down to almost what I think people think would be a horrible thing is everyone has a personal religion. Uh 
Well, what do you think? Or would it be variation on a theme? Well, you know? maybe that's yeah, it. Yeah, but you do remind me of the danger of field trips. You know, I would take students for their first visit to a reform synagogue, and I'd hear them on the phone to their mothers on the way home saying, I get Judaism now. And I want to say, no way. <laughs> I mean, what if they'd only walked in one Greek Orthodox church and then got on the phone and said, I get Christianity now? You know, the variations are so vast, but there's something about the divine love of diversity in that if you I mean why isn't it all wiped out why hasn't over all this time some of it been you know obliterated instead it seems to proliferate but but I instead of a personal religion I like to think that humans have been invited into the creativity of the traditions, that if they're living traditions, they take living people to make sense of them, to ask questions about them, to shift with the times. I think in LDS life, you know, my limited knowledge, it's about revelations. There are new revelations. And when they come, those didn't stop in the fourth century or the third or the second, that they're to be revered, paid attention to, and then worked out with one another. What does that mean for us Mm. in our communal life together? That's not a personal religion. When a faith evolves, it's because the people in it, I want to say, have evolved as well. But it does point to the fact there's no such thing as a religion. That's like, is there a waltz? No, there are people who dance a waltz, but they're going to dance a waltz differently. They've got the steps, but watch them and you'll see how different waltzes can look. So what is the importance that you see of religious community? Even though I think we tend to experience it personally, Mm -hmm. but we do also do things as groups, and they seem to be important. Mm -hmm. Like we want to be at the wedding, for Mm -hmm. instance, Mm -hmm. at that sacrament, instead of just the couple shows up, because that's all that's necessary. Right. But we want to be part of that. What are we looking for, or what does community in a faith give us, do you think? Well, and since you brought up a wedding, in my tradition, there's a place where the officiant turns to the people and says, will you support these two people in their vows? Mm. And we all say as loud as we can, we will. And we say the same thing at baptism. So the community support and the accountability, this doesn't happen as often, but there are a few people I trust enough who trust me who will pull me aside and say, What's up with that? You know, tell me about that. And they ask it as a question, but they're calling me to account. And with enough love, that is the best thing that can happen to me. The God I didn't make up is tapping me on the shoulder. (laughs) I can do more with money that I pool with other people's money. I can do more in the community if we all take turns volunteering. I love to sing together and not only alone. I mean, who can have a picnic on the church grounds by yourself? I'd be out there with my peanut butter and jelly feeling so sad. So there's a, a wonderful thing about that Holy Spirit air moving in and out of a lot of lungs and not just one pair. I had a Hindu friend tell me once that we're told that the more rare something is, the more valuable it is, like gold <laughs> or platinum, whatever. <laughs> but he felt that if something was really a divine truth, it should be in more places. <laughs> and so when he heard certain truths in other faiths, like how you should treat other people like yourself, he felt like that was confirmation of its truth. And if he couldn't find one of his own faith's precepts Hmm. anywhere else, he ought to question it a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) What a great way to think, isn't it? Interesting, Uh, interesting. And he did pick golden rulish, which does show up almost everywhere in some form or another. That's what I meant when I said get over yourself Mm -hmm. and help other people. 
which we'd call the two great com- yeah. maybe get over yourself is acknowledge God yeah. in, in some yeah. ways that you are not the God of your life and the neighbor because yourself comes third I had a guy who gave me a medal once that said you are third <laughs> make make yourself feel better about getting the bronze our time is short are there one or two things that people could see as a starting place to reach out to people in their communities or their neighbors of other faiths that could help establish a mutually respectful relationship, like not so much a debate society, but just understanding in the realm of faith. That's going to depend a lot on the community, right? And and mm. whether economics, politics, changing neighborhoods, you know, are going on because there are things that will add to the difficulty or the easiness of that effort. But my main advice when I think about my community, which is rural Georgia, but with enough Southeast Asian Buddhists to have a temple. So Mm. when I think of it, the main thing is let's not sit down and talk about religion. Let's maybe sponsor a 5K race to raise money for the public school playground. Let's build a habitat house together. Let's go clean up the Chattahoochee River near where we live together. Let's look at the community we share and see how we could get together and have conversations while we're picking up garbage, have conversations while we're deciding about the booths we're going to put up at our uh, food festival or sponsor a movie festival together. You know, But a third thing, a third thing is yes, what I'm yes. talking about. Uh-huh. Not a face-to-face-to-face, to face, let's compare all of our beliefs, but what third thing can we do together about something we mutually care about? I have found the best conversations come out of that. So th- those would be the ideas I would challenge someone to come up with. And it's while we're working on something else. Right. That's it, great. That's where the conversations come. Why'd you do that that way? Why do you have to go over there and pray now? Can't you mm-hmm. pray later? Just all kinds of things yeah. come up while we're doing a third thing that we all agree on, that we all agree is necessary and good. Barbara, what should I ask you that I don't know to ask you? <laughs> is, is there something you walk out and think, oh, I wish we talked about this? I just... I'm so happy you asked me. I'm here on a learning mission of my own. This is one of the first speaking engagements I've taken post-pandemic, and I took it because it's in Provo at Brigham Young University because I want to immerse myself even for a day in this way of honoring that which is beyond us that calls us to look at each other the way you and I are looking at each other, though our listeners can't hear us, but your method of questioning me, and now I go out to ask questions of others on this campus and so look forward to coming away from here changed by this. So you've already started that process, and I'm very grateful. I'm going to be thinking about the God that I didn't make up Ooh. and like how much of me have I put into my perception mm-hmm. of God and how much do I need to get out of the way and say, well, I chose that because it's what I wanted. Hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> the easy way. <laughs> Somewhere the angels are applauding. Yeah. <laughs> Barbara Brown Taylor is an author. She's an Episcopal priest. I could not be happier that you took time to share yourself and your thoughts today. Thank you for speaking with me in good faith. Thank you so much. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave a five-star comment or review where you get your podcasts. That helps spread the word. Our Twitter feed is at InGoodFaithBYU. InGoodFaith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon, right here, In Good Faith.